Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the Decent Garner Law Firm, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hansen. Good morning, Yuma. This is Sean Garner. I'm an attorney with Decent Garner and Hansen, and this is Life, Death, and the Law. It is Monday, June 13th. And we're going to be discussing uh, some interesting topics. First of all, we've got to uh, talk a little bit about D-Day that occurred 78 years ago on June 6th last week. And we're going to talk about a little bit of voter fraud that uh, has been, it's, it's made its way back into the news largely because of uh, the movie 2000 Mules produced by Dinesh D'Souza. And we're also going to talk about um, some anniversaries, some special events that have occurred in, in my life individually, and um, let's, let's start from there. So I want to start with talking a little bit about D-Day and how important of an event that was. Uh, that was obviously the, the landing, the Normandy landings that occurred on Tuesday, June 6, 1944. It was where the Allied invasion in Normandy and the Operation Overlord during World War II stormed the beaches uh, of, of France. And it was Omaha Beach that they, they stormed, and it was to liberate France and to go on to liberate the other Allied countries for the Western Front and begin their push into Germany and eventually Berlin to win the war. And this was an extraordinary display of heroism, and I don't think anybody puts it better than President Ronald Reagan in his speech in 1984 when he commemorates the 40th anniversary of Normandy. And so what we're going to do is we're going to play a clip of that right now. Mr. President, distinguished guests, we stand today at a place of battle, one that 40 years ago saw and felt the worst of war. Men bled and died here for a few feet of, or inches, of sand as bullets and shell fire cut through their ranks. About them, General Omar Bradley later said, Every man who set foot on Omaha Beach that day was a hero. No speech can adequately portray their suffering, their sacrifice, their heroism. President Lincoln once reminded us that through their deeds, the dead of battle have spoken more eloquently for themselves than any of the living ever could. That we can only honor them by rededicating ourselves to the cause for which they gave a last full measure of devotion. Today, we do rededicate ourselves to that cause. And at this place of honor, we're humbled with the realization of how much so many gave to the cause of freedom and to their fellow man. Some who survived the battle of June 6, 1944 are here today. Others who hoped to return never did. Someday, Liz, I'll go back," said Private First Class Peter Robert Zanetta of the 37th Engineer Combat Battalion and first assault wave to hit Omaha Beach. I'll go back and I'll see it all again. I'll see the beach, the barricades, and the graves. Those words of Private Zanetta come to us from his daughter, Lisa Zanetta Hen, in a heart-rending story about the event her father spoke of so often. 
In his words, the Normandy invasion would change his life forever, she said. She tells some of his stories of World War II, but says of her father, the story to end all stories was D-Day. He made me feel the fear of being on that boat waiting to land. I can smell the ocean and feel the seasickness. I can see the looks on his fellow soldiers' faces, the fear, the anguish, the uncertainty of what lay ahead. And when they landed, I can feel the strength and courage of the men who took those first steps through the tide to what must have surely liked, looked like instant death. Private Zanatta's daughter wrote to me, I don't know how or why I can feel this emptiness, this fear, or this determination, but I do. Maybe it's the bond I had with my father. All I know is that it brings tears to my eyes to think about my father as a 20-year-old boy having to face that beach. The anniversary of D-Day was always special for her family. And like all the families of those who went to war, she describes how she came to realize her own father's survival was a miracle. So many men died. I know that my father watched many of his friends be killed. I know that he must have died inside a little each time. But his explanation to me was, you did what you had to do, and you kept on going. When men like Private Zanata and all our Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy 40 years ago, they came not as conquerors, but as liberators. When these troops swept across the French countryside and into the forests of Belgium and Luxembourg, they came not to take, but to return what had been wrongly seized. When our forces marched into Germany, they came not to prey on a brave and defeated people, but to nurture the seeds of democracy among those who yearned to be free again. We salute them today. But Mr. President, we also salute those who, like yourself, were already engaging the enemy inside your beloved country, the French resistance. Your valiant struggle for France did so much to cripple the enemy and spur the advance of the armies of liberation. The French forces of the interior will forever personify courage and national spirit. They will be a timeless inspiration to all who are free and to all who would be free. Today, in their memory, and for all who fought here, we celebrate the triumph of democracy. We reaffirm the unity of democratic peoples who fought a war and then joined with the vanquished in a firm resolve to keep the peace. From a terrible war, we learned that unity made us invincible. Now, in peace, that same unity makes us secure. We sought to bring all freedom-loving nations together in a community dedicated to the defense and preservation of our sacred values. Our alliance, forged in the crucible of war, tempered and shaped by the realities of the post-war world, has succeeded. In Europe, the threat has been contained. The peace has been kept. Today, the living here assembled, officials, veterans, citizens, are a tribute to what was achieved here 40 years ago. This land is secure. We are free. These things are worth fighting and dying for. Lisa Zanata Hen began her story 
by quoting her father who promised that he would return to Normandy. She ended with a promise to her father who died eight years ago of cancer. I'm going there, Dad, and I'll see the beaches and the barricades and the monuments. I'll see the graves and I'll put flowers there just like you wanted to do. I'll feel all the things you made me feel through your stories and your eyes. I'll never forget what you went through, Dad, nor will I let anyone else forget. Dad, I'll always be proud. Through the words of his loving daughter, who is here with us today, a D-Day veteran has shown us the meaning of this day far better than any president can. It is enough for us to say about Private Zanatta and all the men of honor and courage who fought beside him four decades ago, we will always remember. We will always be proud. We will always be prepared so we may be always free. That speech, if that doesn't raise the hairs on the back of your neck, then uh, you, you need to do a, a check to see <laughs> where you are in your position as not only an American and a lover of all that is free and good and right, um, but emotionally intact. Because this, these are people that sacrificed their all for us. And uh, many of them who stormed the beach never came back, as um, President Reagan indicated. And, and the confirmed casualties is 4,000, but there was an estimated casualties of up to 10,000 in just a very short period of time when uh, the Allied forces stormed the beach, Omaha Beach. This is an amazing show of heroism. And uh, I, I think that we forget that too quickly. And President Reagan is also famously quoted for saying that uh, freedom is only a generation away. And that, and I don't know if I got that exactly right, but I'm paraphrasing it. And, and what that indicates is it only takes one generation to forget what their predecessors did to provide everything that they enjoy, to provide them the freedom and uh, the, the quality of life that we enjoy today. So let's talk about some other things that are occurring today in our society. We've got elections coming up. Obviously, th there's a lot of uh, political unrest, and uh, there's a big hope there that the policies that have taken our nation down this terrible rabbit hole of inflation and uh, a lot of political division um, based on allegations of racism and allegations of um, hip hypocrisy and bias against sexual orientation. And we're going to see whether or not the people are tired of uh, the political leaders and want to elect people that really have their heads screwed on right and, and have uh, their their finger on the pulse of the people and what we really feel and think are important. Absolutely. I, I, I hope we get back to boring. Boring politicians that just want to do a job and, and make life better instead of grandstanding and making it about the headlines, making it about um, the political process. Because we see that all too often today. And 
you know, it's it's the season. It is election season. They are here. The signs are out, and politics are happening. So, and, and speaking about elections, there's we're, we wanted to address election fraud. Um, there's a movie out there called 2,000 Mules. And if you haven't seen it before, we've, we've mentioned it several times on our show before. It's produced by Dinesh D'Souza, and he is a fantastic, one of my favorite uh, political commentators. He has a background that uh, is really one that uh, it, it, it's, it's hard to um, understand exactly how much he appreciates America without understanding his background, because he wasn't born here. He doesn't take it for granted, like a lot of us do. He was born in India, and, and his grandfather hated um, white people, and his and his father... The British, I mean, I can understand, yes, I can understand that. Yes, because they're occupancy. I don't, don't hold that against them. I don't either. And uh, his father tolerated them, and, and Dinesh came over and is a first-generation immigrant in the United States, and he really embraced um, the idea of America and is a champion, one of the foremost champions for the ideals that America was built upon, and that is freedom, more particularly freedom of speech and representation of the people by the people legitimately. And so what he does is he talks about um, the candidates for um, public office, and he makes movies about them. He's made several really incredible documentaries, some of the most successful documentaries out there, and despite some of the movements in the mass media and the mainstream media to suppress the information that is provided in those documentaries and the documentaries themselves, they've, they've gotten out and they've been played in theaters and they've actually provided a, a, a very good insight as to who these politicians are, and how our election process is being run. And this latest movie is 2,000 Mules. Now, what it talks about is um, what happened in the 2020 election. Now, what he brings up initially is that uh, there's a company that uh, collects information about uh, what's geo tracking. Geo tracking. I mean, we all pretty much carry our our tracking devices with us everywhere, you know. Um, and they they harvest that data and provide that data for sale. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. So when we advertise that way, and Cody, you've you've helped us advertise that yeah, way. I mean, a lot of people do. There, there's over 300 companies that collect data that is produced by your cell phone. When you go to certain locations, the satellites pick up the location by triangulating your location. And then um, based on your demographic, um, you are provided with ads on Facebook, on YouTube, on whatever social media platform you might be on. Search engines, email, I mean, you name it, anywhere. They're, they're collecting that data and they're, they're selling it to companies. Yeah. yeah. And so um, instead of having like the little coupon slip at the aisle and the, uh, where you're, you're picking out your toilet paper, it, it pinpoints that you're at the aisle where the toilet paper is. And if you happen to be on your phone at that time, it'll bring up, you know, a certain time. I can't think of a name of a toilet paper right now off the top of my head, but... Charmin. Charmin. There you go. And it'll, it could advertise that to you. So it's extremely accurate. And um, the 
marketing companies and the commercial companies, they know that. And that's why they put millions and billions of dollars into this type of technology to advertise to their audiences. Well, he used that same type of technology to see if there were people that were um, stuffing ballot boxes. And so what he found was um, this company purchased a lot of uh, this geotracking information, and literally trillions of pings that were coming from people's cell phones at certain points in time, and then they narrowed it down, and they narrowed it down around ballot boxes. The detractors of the movies, or the critics of the movies, say, well, you know, this might be just well-meaning citizens that are taking uh, people that are incapacitated or otherwise too busy and, and taking their valid ballots to the boxes and, and helping them vote. Okay, well, why would they be going to 10 different boxes in a single day? Well, were laws broken? Okay, and, and, and that's another good question. Is it illegal to take somebody else's ballot? Um, in most states, if you're a caregiver, you can take somebody's ballot, or if you're a family member, you can take somebody else's ballot and deposit it into um, these drop boxes. In no state is it uh, legal for individuals to accept money to collect the ballots and deliver those ballots. And, and for okay. good reason. You don't want to have money for organs, right? Because then that's going to produce a black market for organ harvesting, right? And uh, you don't want to produce a black market for anything that's illegal, like child porn and things like that. And so there is laws against charging money to deliver ballots. In no state is that is that legal. And that's and, good. That's good. And, and, and it, different states have different laws about their voting procedures, and that's right. That's where it should be. It should be um, at the, the st state level where voting laws are determined. That's actually in the Constitution. I know that right now um, it's, it's been a big push to make a federal law regarding voting rights. And the federal law, if you look right into it, it really makes it quite easy to make a systematic um, fraud in, in voting more prevalent because it allows for individuals, anybody and everybody to receive absentee ballots whether or not they request them and for those absentee ballots to be counted after the election day and all the things that um, are actually more prone to fraud to be a federal law that a state cannot um, Put up restrictions against that. I, you know, I think we should do what. Uh, remember when the the first elections in Iraq when we freed them? Remember how they did it? Yeah, they dipped their thumb. Yeah, and they held up their finger, and it was you know your there we go. finger there. Stand in line on election day, make it you know an event like it should be, like it used to be, and then you have your thumb dipped in ink, and there you go, and it it, it works. But the absentee ballot thing, I think, has is, is gotten. Um, I don't want to use the word corrupted or whatever, but it's, it's, it's gotten, prone to corruption. It's gotten bloated. Yeah, I say bloated because it, it, it's beyond what it should be. Um, it's not just service members or or disabled. It's people that you know, for COVID reasons, hey, we don't want to go to the polls. You know, mm -hmm. and, and now that's expanded. Um, but you're right; it is openly inviting uh, corruption. And and this, you know, COVID came out, and whether it came out. Um, as some part of some nefarious scheme, or it was just this 
event that occurred coincidentally and it occurred during an election year and it occurred specifically during the elections where there was a lot of lockdowns and so these absentee ballots surged quite a bit. Um, that, if you're a conspiracy theorist, then boy, that does that feed right into um, your theory that there's there's a political um, scheme that's that that's being propped up by COVID. And I I know re- recently the COVID numbers are starting to surge again. In fact, uh, two weeks ago I got COVID, and I didn't. I didn't even realize that it was spreading again, but I got COVID. It was like a flu. Um, I was down for three days. And uh, we'll, we'll take a break and we'll come back. We'll talk a little bit more about this. This is 560 AM KBLU Life, Death, and the Law. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law right here after this. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the Decent Gardner Law Firm. Welcome back, Yuma. This is Sean Garner. I'm an attorney with Decent Garner and Hanson. We do estate planning. Uh, we help people get their affairs in order. We make sure that uh, they keep all their hard-earned money, houses, vehicles, uh, their legacy, in a sense, Um within their family or going to the people that they trust and to the causes that they feel very strongly about and they do it in a way that's private that doesn't involve probate or court proceedings and also avoids the unnecessary taxes that can go along with um, an estate distribution. So uh, if you want to get your affairs in order, you don't like your affairs being publicized um, through government entities like the court, then you probably want to get a living trust. You, you at least want to discuss how you can organize your assets and other options for passing them down and, and cr- causing your legacy to last beyond you um, with us. We outline that. We don't charge anything to outline how that can happen. And when you see how clean it can happen and how private your affairs can be maintained, um, you will probably be presently surprised. Now, I have no objection to you taking my outline and taking it on your own and uh, using other tools that are out there, whether they're online tools or another attorney and using it. But we are pretty competent at doing this and doing it effectively and efficiently. And afterwards, I'm here. I, you know where to find me. You can sit across my desk face-to-face to hold me accountable for the types of services that I provide. And that is something that I think that is lacking in our society today. There is no lack of services being offered, especially with the Internet and, and being able to get things across state lines or even internationally. But the accountability after you pay for the service that you want to obtain is somewhat lacking. And... Our law office is a building bought and purchased here on a a lot that is only a mile from my home. So you know where to find me, and I want you to hold me accountable because I want your estate plan to work. And if something doesn't work, I want to know how we can fix it. So that's what we do for not only the Yuma community, but also um, our winter visitors that come and want to have estate planning done that is going to work nationwide. You know, Sean, as someone that, that has one of your estate plans, 
Um, I don't think I need to hold you accountable. I think I just need to call the office from time to time and get help when the bank says, hey, uh, why is the not in the title? Or, hey, this date uh, doesn't have a comma or whatever the case may be. There's times where I've had to call and, and the offices just talk to that banker and help straighten something out. So having that resource is well worth it. And that's that's something that we actually encourage our clients to do. Not only is it a service that's available for our clients, it's something that we want our current our clients to rely on us for because if they can come directly to the source and allow us to help them follow through with the estate plan that we've put together, then it's generally a lack of communication when it comes to the banks or the recorder's office or the DMV about how the titles are held. And we can explain it both to uh, the individuals at those organizations and to our clients at the same time because it, it, sometimes there's a, a, a lost in translation type of problem that we have. And we do not charge when we get called or emailed and uh, need further follow-up for our clients, we charge per project. So when you come in and you have an outline of your estate plan done, I'll quote you a flat fee for what it's going to cost for me to put that estate plan together. And then when you have questions and follow-up regarding that estate plan, whether it's you or your successors that are actually helping you after the fact, then um, our discussions are included in that fee. So we don't charge by the hour. I don't charge in six-minute increments like uh, most attorneys. And Every I, phone call you're not billing me on. No, no. And I try not to disparage other attorneys for doing that because that's how the system works. But quite honestly, I believe that that is a conflict of interest between the attorney and the client. That uh, the more time the attorney can justify in inserting themselves into your legal affairs, the more employment and and therefore more um, money they make from the case. So what we do is I say, listen, I'm in the same boat as you. You want to get an estate plan that works. I want to get an estate plan that works. We're going to quote a flat fee for it, and then we're both going to push forward as efficiently and effectively as possible to get that done because it does nothing for me to drag it out and make it longer and more complex than it needs to be. It doesn't really help to have the client like under pressure and trying to get everything wrapped up in an hour either. Exactly. And so they're not speed talking to me or they're not withholding uh, details that they may not feel are important because I need to know everything in order for that plan to work efficiently and effectively. And I also need to um, address a lot of things that attorneys typically don't get into it and, and, and get involved in on an individual level. And that is each asset that is held by the client. One of the things that we do is we review each of those assets and I make a list of each of the assets that you need to go home and collect documentation for so we can put together a binder that is easily reviewable by you and understandable by you listing every asset that you have and then when you do that you can understand this might be something or it should be something will serve as a treasure map um, for my successor to know exactly where each asset is held and how to consolidate and distribute it when the time comes. Perfect. Yeah, I love the client for life aspect of it. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, there are lots of fantastic attorneys out there that do good trusts. In fact, you can buy a, an extremely well-drafted trust online. But 
if it's unique to you individually, then you're, you're going to need to know somebody that's asking you the questions and extracting that information from you. And from my experience, I've never found a website that's been able to do that. Now, drafting the estate plan that's not only well-written, but personalized is only the first step. The next step is understanding where the assets are and helping you follow through in both organizing the assets so they can be found by your successors and also making them um, so they're titled in a way that there's this clean succession of authority that is privately held through people you trust and not um, granted to the court's authority. So that that's what we do. Um, if you want to learn more about what we do, you can learn it for free. You go online. Um, it is yumaestateplanning.com and or you can just Google Deason, Garner and Hansen. Right on our website we will have a free video that explains estate planning and what the different components of it are. When you understand what the components are, you can go to your own attorney, you can find somebody, a legal document preparer that helps you, or you can trust somebody that does it every day, all day, and uh, is here and accountable for the final product. So that will totally be up to you, but the information is free. I want to change gears here. Do we need to take a break? No, I wanted to ask you if I was a Russian oligarch and I had a, a $700 million yacht mm -hmm. and I put it in a trust, would it be protected from being seized from Interpol? <laughs> How do we do that? I'm not the right guy for you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, um, I like to consider myself as, as the attorney for the masses, the attorney for the people. Um, the law firm got its start by representing very large um, development companies and they would develop uh, residential properties they would develop commercial properties and that's where the law firm Larry Deason originally got his start he became very good and efficient at helping people um, establish and protect their legacies as I came into the law firm and and Larry was transitioning into this point as he was in the sunset of his career is to take the lessons that we learned that help the wealthy and to apply those to everybody to make the process so efficient that you don't have to be a multimillionaire to actually benefit from the estate planning that we do or be able to afford the estate planning that we do or so have your children benefit from absolutely because that's really where i i saw you know the 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 benefits is what you pass down and to your children as an inheritance being protected and like those are are huge assets that I don't think a lot of um, I want to say lower middle class have access to. Right, right. Well, we know that trusts have been out there for a long time. Right. And we know that wealthy families like Kennedy's and Rockefeller's, they relied on trusts to protect their their family wealth down the generations. But uh, most people don't fit in that category. And so what we do, I don't represent those types of clients. Um, in fact, um, when the very wealthy clients come into my office, I partner up with an estate planning expert that does specifically complex estate plans that deal with estate taxes. And uh, we work with those individuals for those complex and very individual types of, of planning. But for the everyday person, and what I mean by the everyday person, if you own a house and you've got a bank account, even if you've got a mortgage on your house and car payments, 
um, you have a legacy that you want to pass on and that legacy could be just the value of your home maybe it's some of uh, the the savings in your IRA account or maybe it's just uh, and most importantly who would be the guardian um, of your kids and so I have six kids uh, five of them are minors I've got one that's uh, 20 years old and out of the house but um, my kids that's my my most important legacy and who would be the guardian um, of my kids is the most important provision that I have in my estate plan so if you're thinking I don't have even a hundred thousand dollars in the bank to my name and therefore it an estate plan for me is not justifiable what's more important to you who takes care of your kids or who inherits that hundred thousand dollars or more so I, I believe an estate plan can be beneficial now there are all different levels of planning certainly but you talk about the the kids benefiting from the estate plan and and um, I'll tell you I was of that mindset and I think that there, there's a misnomer that that's who benefits the most from it is uh, the, the generation that inherits after you but I'll tell you that as an individual that participates in the planning process as much as I help others I've seen that the, the plans help me sleep better at night I, I follow through and I keep my assets uh, in order in the type of binders that I provide for my clients and uh, my my wife she deals with certain types of assets she deals with the college accounts for the kids our regular checking and, and um, savings accounts and I deal with insurance aspect of it well all of this is in this binder so when either of us needs information about anything that is in our estate we go to this binder and it's broken up into 10 segments where we can find very quickly the document that we need to get the business done that we need to do, whether it's following up on where the kid's college account is or following up on where we are with car and home insurance. We're going to take a break here. This is 560 AM KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the Decent Garner Law Firm. Welcome back, Yuma. This is Sean Garner. I am an attorney with Deason, Garner, and Hanson. I'm in studio here with Cody Beeson. There's been a, a pretty popular saying out there now that the difference between a conspiracy and the truth is about six months. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, it's been about 18 months since the 2020 election and, and all of the alleged conspiracy theories as to what happened during the 2020 elections. It was definitely bizarre to go to sleep at 11 o'clock at night and most of the swing states had Trump up by large margins, if not double digits, insurmountable margins historically in order for the opponent to come back and win the election. And then you wake up at seven o'clock in the morning the next day and uh, Joe Biden is back in the race and they're calling Arizona very early on um, for Joe Biden and then all of the swing states, every single one of them went for Joe Biden and, and now he's our president. And 
you know, that left a sour taste in my mouth, but I don't want to just say, well, I don't like it, so therefore I'm not going to embrace it as a legitimate election. However, I followed for quite some time the news, um, not the mainstream media, but some of the lesser-known media outlets about what was happening and some potential voter fraud out there with an eye wide open to the fact that I don't want to get sucked into just a conspiracy theory because I don't like the outcome. Now, Cody, you've been in politics. You've been on the city council. You've been involved in the election of superior court judges. You've seen this firsthand. You've witnessed in Yuma County how the elections are run. What has been your experience? Well, you know, Sean, to start with, I think the elections are, are, are ran very well here. I, I think there's a lot of transparency. I think if you look at what our county recorder does and our elections department, um, they follow the law. And if voter fraud is happening, we've seen it, but we've seen it on, on I guess, reports at like a, a county level. Um, and that voter fraud, I haven't seen personally myself. I've only heard accounts of it from multiple people. I don't know about the, the what happened you know, with Cyber Ninjas and Phoenix or any of that. I just know what's happened on the local level in Yuma County. And I know it's been happening for years. Um, so Robin stallworth Poquette yeah, is, yeah. is the Yuma County recorder. And she's currently saying that not only, not only are there allegations of voter fraud, but there's actually been indictments of criminal activity regarding um, ballot collection. Well, well, we know this because um, Shooter put together a bill back in, well, whenever he got up there, um, to limit how many ballots you could have on your you know, person. Like, I think there was a limit of 10 at some point, and then that got struck down because courts. But if I'm not mistaken, after Shooter went up there, that's something that he put in place or, or, or they got going uh, because of the voter fraud happening in South County. So – You've participated and and helped campaign and collect signatures for um, other individuals and, and been in the political realm. Um, what have you seen personally? Um, personally, I, I have not seen what I, I've been told. So when I've gone to local central committee meetings for the Republican Party, you know, people get up there and say, hey, I'm running for this office. And uh, for example, one is a judge, and we've talked about this on air many times, um, but a very well-known judge that has been known to walk and knock on every door in Yuma County. Uh, with a, John Paul Plant. Yep, former judge. He's no longer there. Yeah, but he was a fantastic judge. He was he was a good acquaintance of mine. He came by my house, yeah. he knocked on my door, and he I saw him there personally, and he was asking for my support and my vote. He wasn't collecting ballots. Nope. And he was simply asking my support and and that was it is he said hey you know i knocked on some doors in south county and this guy said one moment and he he came back to the door with so we're ballots. talking san luis uh, san luis summerton okay yeah, something like that and this would have been uh the years of 2008 2010 2012 so well actually it would have been those were the election years but to get on the ballot you'd be collecting signatures sometime prior to now ish i mean it would be April-ish, you know, okay. right then. So point being is he was collecting signatures, going door to door. Somebody said, hey, I got the ballots. Do you so have the $5? Sh he shows up to the door and he says, you know, hey, I'm John Paul Plant and I'm running for a Superior Court judge. And, and how does the person respond? Let me get the ballots. Do you have $5? You know, because he was expecting $5 a ballot. Uh -huh. and, and the judge is like, what? That's not what this is about. I'm just here so you can vote for me. 
Um, that being said, is you know, there's no incentive for this man to get up in 2008, 2010, and tell a room of 40 or 50 people this. You know, he, so he's he at a convention. Judge Plant, who is from every respect that I understand this person, he is integrity through and through. Yeah. And uh, he stands up at a convention. A meeting, a regular monthly meeting. Like I said, 40 or 50 people. And says, you know? I'm out here campaigning, and I noticed something very disturbing. When I went and knocked on the door and introduced myself, somebody was automatically under the impression that they were going to get five bucks for a ballot that was pre-filled out. It, it, well, not pre-filled out. It was blank. Oh, well, that's even worse. It, exactly. Well, I guess... so. It's debatable whether that's worse, but it's still a bad thing. So I remember I heard that story. I also heard stories of, oh, yeah, people um, sat outside the uh, the post office in Summerton or San Luis and, you know, give away hot dogs and collect ballots. I haven't seen that either. Apparently, other people go down there and videotape it. I don't mm-hmm. have time for that, Sean. <laughs> you know? but, but, but this my- is not just hearsay or rumors. I mean, we now have two people, um, the former mayor of San Luis and board member of the Gadsden School District who has been indicted for criminal charges of ballot harvesting. That is Guillermina Fuentes. And we also have Alma Juarez who has also been indicted. And they are under they're facing criminal charges in the Superior County Court, Yuma County Court, um, that uh, they have broken these voter voter fraud laws. And that's that's beyond just a conspiracy theory. This is now criminal charges. This is a sheriff who has investigated it. And um, there's a KYMA story on this where the, the sheriff's been investigating it for some time and now has enough evidence to bring the charges. These charges are actually not being contested by the defendants. There, it's highly expected that there's going to be a guilty plea entered by both of them um, in the upcoming days or weeks. Wow! So okay. that that's no longer conspiracy theory. That is them participating in ballot harvesting. So it's going to confirm some of this. And again, I've only know what I've been told over the past twenty years at these meetings, at these things. But that is. Something is happening. I mean, there, we see it. And what's interesting, we talked about 2,000 Mules, the movie that was put put on produced by Dinesh D'Souza, and New Salem is the platform that it can be watched on. And they actually um, interview a whistleblower from San Luis. Of course, her, her identity is um, hidden, and so she's speaking, and, and her, her voice is uh, disguised, so you can't tell who it is. But she says that... It's run here in Yuma County, like the Rush, oh, no, Russian, the Mexican Mafia, in the way that ballots are collected and elections have been run. And it's widely known in South County, so San Luis and Summerton, and um, now our county recorder is bringing these allegations and these this evidence to the sheriff, and the sheriff is following through, and uh, prosecutors are pressing charges. Oh, rightfully so. Good. So, um, other detractors from the movie and critics of the movie say, well, you know, Dinesh, the, the things that you're putting out there are just fueling conspiracy theories that it's a bunch of loose-ended um, chain of events that you're saying all collaborate together to show that there is a conspiracy that is occurring. And 
honestly, there's not a whole lot of conclusions being drawn on Dinesh's side in the documentary. If you if you watch it, there's a whole bunch of evidence that just leads an average viewer to conclude that there is a lot of fraud going on. And he mentions specifically San Luis, Arizona, and then here three, four weeks after the movie has been released, we've gotten an indictment in San Luis, Arizona. Now, um, some people are saying, well, the sheriff is just a a very right-wing conservative, and he's seen this movie, and he wants to jump on the bandwagon. And Dinesh D'Souza says, that's possible, but it's more likely that he's been collecting evidence for some time now, and the movie came out and is independently uh, cooperated with the fact that there are now being criminal charges that that's that's independent from what is suggested what is shown in the movie well and you can't say that about our county attorney he's a democrat and he's a great county attorney um but that being said i mean if that were the case would the sheriff really be going forward if if it's political and a democrat would be covering no that's right right not the case if if you drill down to the the bare bones of each of these allegations, you will find that there's not only substance to it, but there's much more substance. It's kind of like spotting one cockroach. Um, you know that there are more in the corners and, and in the shadows. And here, Dinesh D'Souza is just pointing out the few cockroaches that were seen. And as the investigations progress, it's, it's being unveiled that this is much more invasive and uh, has gone on for a long time. We are out of time for today, but uh, we want you to respect the people that uh, participated in fighting for our freedoms, especially those who stormed the beaches of Normandy and Omaha Beach, um, because it's now the 78th anniversary of D-Day. So please take a moment to remember them who have fought for our freedom and Keep democracy alive by voting and making sure our elections are free and fair. This is Life, Death, and the Law, 560 AM, KBLU. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the Deason Garner Law Firm at 928-783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.